Thank you, Will. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you. We're, in time, we're going to turn to uh, two passages of Scripture. But you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at this particular moment in time, and then we'll, we'll kind of move from there. Last week, you remember, we started uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I gave you basically an introduction to that great chapter. And we've been coming through the book of 2 Corinthians with the idea of just as a church uh, taking uh, the concept of ministry and really laying it out, hopingly that by the time we get to the first of the year that God will raise up some men and women here that will really want to be uh, a part of uh, uh, our counseling ministry to be able to work with people and help them. And so we're excited about that. But we entered chapter 5, and last week uh, we uh, talked about one of the greatest teachings, if not the single greatest teaching for you and for me as a Christian, and that is the uh, concept of the judgment seat of Christ. You remember I laid out two aspects last week, and that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, many things in the Bible, when you look at them, uh, the way to understand it is realize that many times it's got a twofold concept. Uh, take the judgment seat of Christ is what we're looking at. It's got a doctrinal aspect, and we learned that last week. The fact that when you got saved, uh, God clothed you in His righteousness, and He sealed you under the day of redemption. We know that from our past studies, that that is your standing in Christ Jesus. But then there's also a practical side to it, and that is the fact that we saw it last week, that when you got saved, God saved you for a purpose. He saved you unto good works. He wants you to do something for Him, and we saw how the Bible says that we're to be careful to continue in walking the good work that God has called us to do, the ministry, and of course, that's our state. Two of the greatest concepts that a Christian has to learn and understand uh, very quickly in life, and we talk about it a lot around here, I've laid it out on Thursday night many, many times, is that great aspect of your standing in state. Two different concepts for you and me as a believer. The standing means that the day you got saved, you're sinlessly perfect in Christ, and you're seated in heavenly places. And as far as God's concerned right now, you're already up in heaven. That's how sure your salvation is. And of course, uh, there's a practical side to it, and the practical side is we may be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and in His mind we all may, may be there, but we got to finish out living the rest of today and tomorrow. And that's the practical side, and that's our state. Paul said, whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. You're in Missouri, so that means that you have to be content <laughs> with being in Missouri. You know, today this is going to be, and I, I'm kind of ex somewhat excited about this from one aspect. You know, we've had a lot of new people uh, come into our church here in the last six months and, and, uh, and visitors here today, and uh, this is going to be a, a good practical lesson for you today. Uh, if you're, some of you just you know, started coming to this church, some of you have just gotten saved, you know, and you're getting plugged in, uh, this, is, this is really going to help you today. This is going to be something that's going to give you some real direction in your life from where you're at right now. And I, I'm excited about that because I, I like to do things for people that really uh, meaningfully help them and give them direction. Sometimes you got to preach some things that is good and everybody needs to hear it, but there's times that you just need to give a, a practical application to something. This is what it's going to be today, and this, this will help you a lot today, I do believe, in where you want to get to. And uh, we're going to look at uh, the judgment seat of Christ from, from two different aspects again. I also told you that the uh, 
uh, you know, in reference to uh, you building your life for Christ. You know, a, a while back we talked about the book of Zechariah. And I told you that the book of Zechariah was a book that uh, it's the next to the last book in your Old Testament. And Zechariah is one of the Old Testament prophets. And what he does is he writes to the nation of Israel and he tries to motivate them. I, I've told you many, many times, every book of the Bible, we talked about this a couple of Thursday nights ago, every book of the Bible has an underlying theme or meaning to it, that why it's being written. When it comes to the book of Zechariah, if you don't have that note already in your Bible, it's, it's pretty, pretty obvious what he's doing. The nation of Israel had went back in Ezra and Nehemiah and began to rebuild the temple. But now they have quit. And for 12 years almost, this temple that God said needs to be finished has not been fulfilled. They just kind of gave up on it. And yet, that's such a beautiful picture of, of what God's people do many, many times. Because where in the Old Testament, there was a physical temple that the center of God's worship was around. In the New Testament, we know that our body is the temple. That in the Old Testament, God dwelled in a building. In the New Testament, He doesn't dwell in a building made with hands. He lives inside you if you're saved this morning. And your body, uh, the Bible says, uh, God is the temple of God, which is in you, which you have your God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price, the Bible says. So we see the parallel there. They started out to build this building, and uh, they quit building it. Many times, God's people get saved, and they start to build their building for God and it doesn't get finished either. And what Zechariah does is he tries to motivate them. He tries to tell them, tries to reason with them. <clears throat> and uh, he tries to tell, and one of the great things that he does out of that book, and it, it's my favorite aspect of this, of what he tries to do. He tries to get across to them, look guys, <clears throat> as a nation of Israel, you need to finish this building. And then he tells them, you're not just building a building. You're building Israel's future because Israel cannot have a future without that temple. And I think to myself many, many times, you as God's people, you need to understand. I told you last week, you're not just building something for God, your body, but you're building towards something for God. And that is the day you stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. And you're not just building your body for, for no purpose. You're building your body because of the fact that it's for your future. And you'll never, never fulfill what God wants you to do and really what he saved you for until you first get that concept down. And I, we saw the same, like I said, it, the parallels are so incredible with the nation of Israel. I told you that last week that there are two defining passages uh, that deal with the uh, uh, judgment seat of Christ in your Bible. And the first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and the second one was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what we started last week. Now, in time, if you don't have this already done, uh, you need to have these two chapters uh, concerning the judgment seat pretty well laid out. And we'll help you with some of that today, but if you, if you don't have that in time, you need to get that. And I want to uh, move past the intro for last week today, and I want to look at both passages. And I want to try to get you to see uh, and, and see how these things match up. And uh, you can get some of your notes along the way. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, when he was talking about the judgment seat of Christ, he called it the terror of the Lord. And he says, knowing therefore the tearing of the Lord, we persuade men. And that's really what I want to do today. I want to try to take a practical look at this, but I also want to try to persuade you. I, I want you to see that 
serving God with your life is what he saved you for. And I want you to understand, and I'll preach on it week after week after week because it needs to be the number one thing in your life and my life that we never forget, that God saved you for a reason. And that's what I'm trying to do today is to persuade you to understand that the judgment seat of Christ is coming and we're all going to give an account. And maybe after today, maybe you'll understand it just a little bit better and help you come to that uh, appreciation in your life. But let's have a word of prayer before we jump into these chapters here. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we love you today, and I thank you for these people that have come today, and, and may they get a blessing out of what is said. May it be clear. May it be uh, true. May it be uh, uh, uplifting. May it be something that no matter how young of a Christian is here today, that they can grasp the truth of, of the Word of God. Help me, Father, to lay it out. Help me to uh, put it uh, to them where they can grasp it. Forgive us, Lord, in our, in our lives today if there's things uh, in our life that uh, is not pleasing to you. Make us bring it to your remembrance in my life and in the life of people. Let us put everything under the blood that we might be able to learn and teach and give everything that needs to be said today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you're already in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 1 and let's read that first and then we'll come back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to see the comparison between the two. I want you to understand the difference between the two. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we know that if our earthly house or this tabernacle were dissolved, we know that's our body now, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. We also know now that that is our soul. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. If so, be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For if we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. And then a great verse in verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad." Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Now, that verse is pretty much self-explanatory. It's context of the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10. And uh, he lays some things out there. And now I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says in verse 9, uh, For we are labors together, uh, with God, you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another buildeth thereupon. But let every every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold... Uh, Double, uh, 
wood, hair, stubble, for every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, that ye the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any, uh, any man uh, defile the temple of God, uh, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye? Now, it's really important to understand uh, all the material in, this, in these two chapters. There's a lot of similarities of the two, which we also want to see, but then there's some real differences between the two, and we need to see that also. I think the best way to lay it out is that chapter in chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 uh, down 9 through 17 here where I read uh, this is what I would call the operational structure of the judgment seat of Christ in this chapter you're going to find everything you need to do it's going to tell you almost play by play that if you want to Come to the judgment seat of Christ and get everything that God has for you. If you want to have all of the things that God uh, has for you, then 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is your how-to chapter. It's going to show you uh, how and everything from the day you got saved right up to the day you stand before Christ. But then on the other hand, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, it now forms, as I said last week, our perspective of the judgment seat of Christ. It's a lot like this. Chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, tells me what I should be doing in light of the judgment seat of Christ. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells me what I should be thinking in light of the judgment seat of Christ. One shows me what I ought to be doing. The other one shows me how I look at that day. And there's a lot of similarities between the two, but the thing you want to remember is the differences between the two. They got to go hand in hand. And when you put them hand in hand and you see how the thing works, it really, it really kind of uh, goes together to give you a complete understanding of this great subject. You got to understand what you got to do, but then you got to understand what you're dealing with and looking at it. And uh, in understanding chapter five, the real key to it is, is understanding chapter three and to get them both uh, together, the operational side and then also the, the attitude of heart side. So what I want to do today is, is take 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In my Bible, if you'd look at my, my study Bible, you'd find that, uh, and I told you this a couple of Thursday nights ago, that the goal that you ought to have in your life to some point is to get every book of the Bible broken down, that you understand how that book relates to the overall concept of the Bible. Everything we do lends itself. That's what we did in Bible Basics. We do that on Thursday night. There's hardly a time that I don't teach you something that I lay that out so you can kind of pick it up as you go along so you, don't, you can kind of get the stuff. And, and that's what you need to do. But along with that, you're going to find that every chapter has its breakdown. And so at some point in your life, not only are you going to have to have the overall conceptual view of the Bible, you're going to have to have the understanding of the books, how they fit in the Bible, and then you get in and you break down the chapters and see how they fit within the book, with the book within the Bible. And this is what I'm going to do for you today. If you look at my, if you look at my 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, you'd find that that chapter simply is broken down into eight concepts. And that's how I memorize things. That's how I remember things. Uh, I mean, there's 31,171 verses in a King James 1611 authorized version. Uh, I can't remember all of them. 
And uh, so what you do is you've got to find a way that you can, you, can, you can keep the material you need to have at hand uh, because there's just no way you're going to do it. And for me, it's breaking it down in sections. I, I, I told you a while back about the book of Genesis. I think the book of Genesis is probably one of the most key books in the Bible. Uh, it's the book of the beginnings. And when you look at Genesis, I think the two key books that you got in the Bible that the whole Bible is built around is Genesis and then there's the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament does for you and for me what Genesis does for you and me in the Old Testament. It's just, it's the key book back in the Old Testament. New Testament, the key book is the book of Acts. And yet, when I look at the book of Genesis, that's 50 chapters. I mean, in all of those things, and I told you before that, you know, when I look at the book of Genesis, I got two choices. I can, I can get in there and try to break it all down and memorize it all and figure the whole thing out, or I can be smart about it and realize that the Bible says that I'm the rightly divide the word of truth. Now, I look at Genesis 50-some chapters with a lot of things going on there, but when reality, you know what you have in the book of Genesis? You have what? About 10 stories. The whole book of Genesis is built around 10 stories. Instead of trying to memorize the whole book, just take the 10 stories, remember the 10 stories. Why? Some of the most godless, worldly Christians you ever met in your life that went to Sunday school from the time they were five years old to the time they were 12 and then quit going to church and haven't been in the church for 40 years, you start, they still remember the story of Adam and Eve. They still remember Daniel and the lion's death. They still remember the story of Abraham. They remember stories. And that's how God, why God puts stories in the Old Testament. And when I look at the Old Testament, it's not all the chapters in the books, it's stories. And when I come to places like uh, in the book of, uh, of uh, 1 Corinthians here, and I got this subject about the judgment seat of Christ, then I break this thing down into eight concepts that help me remember it all. So if you don't have these in your Bible today as we start to come through them, and, and I think that once we get a handle on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, then we get a better handle on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, then we get a better handle on the whole concept. Now, turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 if you're not there, and let's pick it up in verse 9. Let me show you my first concept as I have it laid out in my Bible. And I'm basically just going to show you what I got and why I got it and how it helps me. He says in verse 9, for we are labors together with God, you are God's, you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. Now the first concept that I have in my Bible is, is probably a very central thing for uh, me as a Christian, and I would say you too, and that is the fact that the Bible says we're labors together. You see, the key to working in a successful ministry for God is just really simple. It's everybody uh, totally working toward the same goal with God, and that's ministry you know, working as a team. You know, I, everything I do, I try to, uh, you can see that endeavor in everything that I do in this church. Uh, my goal is to build leadership, but leadership has to be built through teamwork. And you see it in the athletic ministry. You see a bunch of people uh, that you think are softball teams, but in reality, you're seeing an outreach ministry that is simply built on everybody having a goal, reaching that goal through different diverse ways, but we all have the same goal. And it works. It's the same thing down in Restart. That's what we do. Uh, we are labors together. And uh, in, in any church, diversity is the key. I mean, Romans chapter 12, verse 4 says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. The beauty about any, any team or any church 
if it works together, as labors together, and everybody has that concept, and there's no competition, there's no one thinking they're better than anybody else, or nobody getting ahead of anybody else, everybody earning their way, uh, the real key to that is the fact that you have so many people good at so many different things, and yet they all pull together for a common cause, and that common cause is the ministry. And that's why if you're going to build leadership in people, and that ought to be the job of every pastor the moment he hits the first day of the church. He ought to start looking and combing that church for everybody who has any element of leadership ability and then cultivating that and beginning to build that because that's what you have to do. But the only way you do that is to build in a team concept. Uh, many of you have been over Jamie's house. I thought of this as I was putting this together today. If you use Jamie's downstairs bathroom and you go in there, there's a little sign on the back of her commode. Anybody know what it says? I laughed the first time I saw it. I laughed every time I saw it. This will be a test of who goes to the bathroom more than somebody else at Jamie's house. Anybody know what that little plaque says on there? What is it, Joe? Something about singing. Yeah, something about team. Anybody? Joe obviously is not really paying attention when he's going there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little plaque that she's, and why she's got it on the back of her toilet, I don't know. <laughs> but that's Jamie. But there it is, a little plaque that says, if we all sang the same note, there wouldn't be any harmony. And that's true of everything in life. It's certainly true of the ministry. I don't want everybody to be like the person sitting next to you. The greatest asset that you have to this church is who you are in your individuality and what you bring to the party. The greatest aspect that you have in this church is what God-given abilities God has given you. But when we all pull together and we understand verse 9 that we're laborers together and we are all laborers together for one goal. Uh, you know, most churches, when they put a softball team together or a league together, they, they have a goal of, uh, I, I've been in enough of them, I've been around enough of them over the last 35, 40 years. They always say, you know what, we're going to have a softball league and, uh, you know, let's get a bunch of people together and then we're going we're gonna to try to find a way to minister to all these people. You see, that's not the way I look at it. I told my captains from day one, yeah, we're going to have a league. We're going to have an outreach ministry called softball and that's going to be our goal and then we're all going to try to find out how we play softball with that. You see, you have to have the understanding that everything we do should be ministry-orientated. Everything this church does, it's about people, reaching people, helping people, giving people what they need. You know, America, every nation, every culture has its needs. You know, you go to some places in Africa, the little kids are starving to death. You go to some places and they don't have any clothes. You go to some places and they don't have anything at all. You know, they don't have any homes. That's not America's problem. America's problem is not food, it's not clothing, it's not material possessions. America's problem is it's an insane asylum run by the inmates. America's problem is there's busted marriages, busted families, busted relationships, busted children, and everybody's broke. And our job is to reach out to that. Hey, if we've got the answer, if we've got the truth, if the Bible's the Word of God, and it's everything that God says it is, and I'm certainly not doubting that when I'm saying that, my point is this. Why did God save us? He saved us that we could band together in this church, become laborers together, and through the diversity of everybody doing something different and being good at it, 
we have the ability now to pull together as an effective team. And that's a great, that's a great concept. But in verse 1, the context is just not building a ministry together. I want you to look at the last part of that verse, and this is going to form the second principle I have in my Bible. It's also found in verse 9. <clears throat> it says, For ye labors together with God. We already covered that one. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. You see, it says you're God's husbandry. You're God's building. The first, the first and foremost thing we do in building a ministry has to be building each other. The key word there is husbandry. That goes back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, where it talks about Noah, where it said, And Noah began to be a husbandman and planted the vineyard. A husbandman is a man who takes care of, in Genesis 9's case, a vineyard. And he makes sure that it bears the most fruit possible. <clears throat> he looks after it. He keeps the weeds pulled. He keeps it tended. <clears throat> he makes sure that it gets enough water, gets enough sunlight. A husbandman, in our day of way of thinking, is like a farmer. He's someone who cultivates the ground, who brings about out of the earth. And he brings about <clears throat> a fruit and, and corn and tomatoes and wheat and all of the things that man needs to survive. But he's responsible for that. And that's exactly what God's people should be always doing with other Christians. Our job is to help the brethren, not hurt them. Our job is to always make sure that whatever we do, it edifies somebody else. That's a big word within the New Testament church today, <clears throat> edification. Making sure that whatever we do helps somebody and not hurts somebody. <clears throat> you know, we're laborers together, the Bible says. And a husbandman is a man who takes care of the, uh, of the vineyard, the church, the ministry that God has given them. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says, we are God's husbandry, and we have our own vineyard we need to take care of. You know, God's people should always, as I said, help the brethren and not hurt them, and help them grow. The perfect cycle for you coming into this church, or anybody coming into this church, there's a clear, definite cycle that ought to operate in your life. And maybe there's a little variance to it, but it, it always falls the same way. Somebody comes into this church, and if they're lost, they get saved. Many times they're already saved. They've just been in a dead church where they're not getting anything from the Bible, and they're fed up with it, and they're looking for the truth, and they find it. Either way. But then at that point, if, they're unsa if they were unsaved and they got saved, then they begin to get the disciples. What does that mean? It means that somebody starts taking and working with them to help them. Somebody in the entry level begins to work with them. And sometimes it's two or three people. Sometimes it's like a little support group. <clears throat> sometimes it's, it's hand-fixed to what your need is. And you have a place where somebody begins to teach you the Bible, begin to show you the principles, help you understand some of the basic concepts of the Word of God and how it impacts your life. If you've already been discipled or maybe you're farther along that way, then you get into another level of it. Some of you are teaching people disciple, or, uh, uh, Bible basics or you're going through marital counting or you're going through this with people. You're going through that. You're working with them. But my point is this. This is the process. This is the cycle. You come in. You get saved or you get into the book. You begin to get what you need. You get rooted in the Word of God. You get grounded in the Word of God. You get established in the Word of God. You come through that process. Then you begin to get involved. And then what you do, 
you go right back and take somebody else that comes in that door and do for them exactly what somebody did for you. That's the process. That's the process. You see it in our Iron Man groups. Our, our, our iron sharpeneth iron. You see it in our prayer groups, the Iron Man group. You see it all the time. Accountability groups where people uh, want to be uh, held accountable by other people, that you help each other, that you give each other verses throughout the week. You text each other principles that you find. And everybody encourages everybody. That's what it is. We can't build, uh, we can't be laborers together and build a church and build something for God without helping build each other. It's not my responsibility just to build you. I may be the guy that's responsible for the course we set and the things that we do, but it's everybody's job here to build the person sitting next to you or the person in front of you or the next person that comes through, <clears throat> comes through that door. That's exactly what we do. That's what our job is, and it's the perfect cycle. I mean, it's a simple fact. I can 100% guarantee you. If that process doesn't get started in your life at some point, you will wind up hurting people more than you will be helping them and ultimately be hurting yourself. It's 100% guarantee. You know why that is? Because God didn't save you to sit. God saved you to minister. Last Thursday night, somebody asked one of the greatest questions uh, about the Holy Spirit of God out of John chapter 16, and I showed you the seven things the Holy Spirit of God does. And three of them were for the world. And then the rest of them are for you and for me. Do you know why those four things in there go directly to you in the great detail we laid it out? I'll tell you why. You know why he gave you and I the Holy Spirit of God and those four things that it does for you and me? I'll tell you why. Because God's got something he wants you to do. He's got something he wants you to do. And yes, we are laborers together, but we are God's husbandry. We can't build a work for God without building each other for God. And we got to help each other. That's why I gave you that verse in Proverbs 27, 17 about iron sharpening iron so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That's what we do. I try to leave people better than I meet them. I think that's a great principle to live your life by. Leaving people better off than you find them. Let them understand that, that uh, our meeting did something positive for them. In maybe the most minute way, it doesn't matter. Some people you can have more of an impact in with other people and other people, but you ought to have a goal in life that you try to leave people better than you find them. Try to help them in some way. In a church scenario like this, where you can actually get involved in somebody's life, hey, you can see that great concept how that your influence in somebody's life. I'll get calls from people sometimes, and they will say to me, "I need help." Uh, our marriage is having some problems or I'm having some struggles or I'll get a call from parents saying my kid's having some trouble and I will I'll always, when that person is talking to me and laying out what they need, God always puts somebody in my brain that needs to be the person that will be a natural fit to help that person. And you know what? That's a great thing because that's what our ministry is all about. It's you going through the process, preparing yourself realizing that we are labors together and we're God's husbandry. We're here for one reason, and that is to do the work of God, but we got to help everybody get along that way. Then there's the third thing I have in my Bible, and it's found in verse 10. And it says this, <clears throat> According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, 
You know, the key to being a wise master builder is found really in the book of Proverbs. We've talked about this before, but it can always bear repeating. Price of learning is repetition. And, you know, if you come through the book of Proverbs, you'll find that the book of Proverbs defines what a wise man is. See, the Bible's not hard. Somebody says, well, I want to be a wise man. I want to be somebody who has some wisdom and some knowledge. How do I do that? Well, you go to the great book on wisdom, find out the nine things that the book tells you to do to be wise, and then do them. I mean, it's just that simple. It's not hard. And the key to being a wise master builder, and that's what he says. He says the key here is for you and me to be wise in our building of this temple. And wisdom comes from God, and there's nine things in the book of Proverbs that makes a man wise. And I've given them to you before. The first thing he does, and these are not in the order they're found in the Bible, but the first thing a wise man does, the Bible says in Proverbs 11.30, is he wins souls to Christ. He has an active relationship with the Holy Spirit of God that he actually uh, is part of the process of winning people to Christ. The second thing it says he does in 335 is he inherits glory. That'll be, that'll be the judgment seat of Christ itself. The third thing that it does is in chapter 10, verse 8, is the Bible says that a wise man receives commandments. You know, we don't like to be told what to do, but if you stop and look back in your life, the reason why we've gotten in the messes that we've probably gotten in our life because we didn't listen to somebody who told us what we needed to do. And the commandments in the Bible are very clear. The fourth thing, uh, 12, 15, is a wise man hearkens to counsel. In other words, he'll listen to somebody that knows more about the scenario than he does. Now, most teenagers, this is where they fail when it comes to their parents because they don't recognize at 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 that their parents know more about life than they do. So there becomes a breakdown and they have some problems because the kids won't hearken to counsel. But yet I find God's people do the exact same thing. I find people that come in and say, I've got this problem, Bob, and I tell them what the Bible says, and you know what? They go out and do exactly what they wanted to do anyhow. You know why? Because the Bible says a wise man hearkens to counsel. It hearkens to counsel. The fifth thing, 29.11, is he guards his tongue. He watches what he says. The sixth thing in 18.15 is a wise man seeks knowledge. And the seventh thing, in 15.7, he doesn't just seek knowledge. The Bible says that he disperses or he dispenses knowledge. The, the eighth thing is the fact in 14.16 that a, a wise man fears and departs from evil. <clears throat> and then the last thing, the 19th, and oh my my, uh, this is what we talked about last week in chapter 1, verse 5. A wise man will listen and he will hear. See, those are the nine things. Nine things. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, there's a great little story there, and that little story puts all of this into a simple little concept. The book of Proverbs always also talks about a foolish man. In fact, your whole Bible is built around two men, a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man is a man who does these things and then becomes everything that God wants him to be. And we don't have time to go through it this morning, but the same book of Proverbs that lines out the nine things that makes a wise man also lines out the things that make a foolish man, just as I gave you these. But it all comes down to that great story in Matthew chapter 24 <coughs> where Jesus says uh, um, that some people hear what he says but don't do them. And he talks about two guys. One guy builds his house upon a rock, 
and the other guy builds his house upon the sand. Now, that's a simple principle of what we're talking about here when it talks about being a wise master builder. Some of you are going to build your body, your house. You're going to build your, uh, what God has saved. You're going to build it on a rock. That rock is the Bible. That rock is Bible doctrine. Rocks are something that are strong. Rocks are something that <coughs> we look at it, it, it they symbolize uh, strength forever. Rocks, don't, <coughs> rocks are something that <coughs> you can count on and you can anchor yourself to. And of course, this young man, he, he built a house on a rock, on a rock. A rock is a picture of the Bible doctrine. It doesn't change. It's always there. It's something that's strong. It endures time. The foolish man built his house on sand. And of course, sand is very unstable. Sand shifts. Sand changes. Sand opens up. Things sink in it. Sand uh, can cover something up that you can't find it. And of course, the story goes on that when the storms came and the wind came and all of the things that uh, this life can bring, that the man who, who stood the test was the man whose house was built on a rock. The one who failed was the one who was built on the sand. And you know what? That is such a simple, profound thing, but it's true. It's true of everybody in this room and everybody on this planet that's saved. You've got two choices in life, folks. You can either build your house on a rock or you can build your house on the sand. And there's no provision here for a sandy rock. It's either one or the other. And, of course, that's a great principle of being a wise master builder. You know, in new home construction, you will find, and you see this all the time, that contractors like to build themselves as a master builder. In theory... Yeah, yeah, right. <clears throat> you can't laugh at that one. <clears throat> in theory, they are supposed to build better homes. In theory, they're supposed to use top-grade material versus substandard material. I know in our house, you know, after you've been in it 15 or 20 years and something goes wrong, you know, you find when the guy comes in and fixes it, you find that the guy who actually built the house didn't do what he, everything he was supposed to do, okay? A master builder is supposed to fix that. He's supposed to give you top quality work, um, you know, in everything that he does. So he builds himself as a, as a master builder. See, in theory, he's supposed to be somebody you can trust. You build a better house for you. And you know also that you can take that right over into pastors and churches. That's probably one of the greatest concepts that uh, a person can have when you understand the concept of being a wise master builder. Because with pastors and churches, you should follow the same theory. When you look for your next church, you find a pastor who knows how to build you right. You find a pastor who uses top quality material. Don't the next time pick somebody with a substandard book or who lacks the wisdom of building you and providing you with all the right building material. Hey, your judgment seat of Christ depends on it. I mean, uh, I had a couple this week that called me coming over to see me this week. And I didn't ask a lot of questions. Uh, the lady called me and, and, uh, and, you know, she began to tell me that they were going to a church and, um, and you know, they're having struggles there. And, and I asked some questions, you know, without getting too probing. I, my first question is, well, if you're going to a church and you're a member of the church and you have a pastor in that church, why in the world are you calling me? I don't ask that question right out of the chute. I will find that out down the line. But uh, that's my first thought. I mean, why are you calling me? I mean, if you're in another church and that pastor is your pastor and you've got, 
you got, and you're, why, and I did ask a few questions, and they basically said, well, we have went to counseling there, but it isn't working. And I asked him what they were doing, and, and I understood why it wasn't working. You know, uh, your favorite color is not going to make it when your marriage is falling apart. But I thought to myself, you know what, I, two couple of things. First, I thought, wow, what a great thing it'll be, because I get probably four or five of those a month. And uh, what a great thing it'll be down the line in January where I can just lift that couple out and have a team over here to drop them in and meet with them initially and then put them in there and get that thing going. But it became apparent to me immediately what the problem was. Now, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle this because I try to be very, I, I try to be very you know, careful in situations like that. I don't want to badmouth the pastor or the church. That's not my goal. I, I want to help the people, but I'm somewhat limited in how I can help them. A lot of times if you just let them talk, they talk themselves out of the situation they're in, and all you got to do is then try to help them as best you can. But it became apparent to me what the problem was. The problem was substandard material and tried to build this marriage. Somebody was given a material that didn't work. Somebody was giving them low-grade uh, instead of industrial-grade uh, materials. You know, at the end of the day, we can talk about being a wise master builder, but in reality, all I can do for you is provide the top quality materials. The difference between this, our story, and, and uh, uh, the contractor who bills himself as a, as a master contractor, the difference between him and me is this. All I can do is provide you the materials. You've got to build it. And I'll take this couple and I'll, I'll, I'll show them what, I'll, I'll give them some insight. I'll, I'll give them some insight why they're having marital problems. Most people have marital problems. They don't even know what the, why they're having them. Most people, they go, and this guy, bless his heart, uh, maybe he's a nice guy. I don't know. But it was obviously that he was trying to treat the symptom without ever getting to the problem. And that happens most of the time. And I'm not interested in treating your symptoms. You see, if you treat your symptoms, once you get feeling better, you know, then, then you don't take the medicine anymore. No, let's solve the problem, and the symptoms will take care of themselves. So that's one of the things I'll help them do. And when we get into the, after the first of the year, those are the things I'm going to show how you to do, get right to the problem. But it was obvious to me that the biggest fundamental issue they had of why their marriage wasn't going anywhere, why they couldn't get anything done, because they were being provided with substandard material. This material wouldn't fix anything. This material won't help you when you've got problems between you and your husband or you and your wife. These substandard materials are not going to deal with bitterness that may be in somebody's house or disappointment or something that happened that you can't get over in their life or a husband just not being able to get down to the place where he really has become the spiritual leader or the wife, the spiritual follower. I mean, substandard material won't cover that. And uh, it's a point where you've got to be a wise master builder. And a wise master builder, if you're going to build it, then you got to make sure you got the best materials to build it with. And that's why I'm telling you. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. Well, the fourth thing that I have in my Bible is in verse 11. And this deals with the foundation that you lay in your life, and this will be the day you get saved. When you lay the found, when it talks about, uh, uh, I have laid the foundation, another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for no other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the day you got saved. The day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. Now, I don't know this, if you know this or not. There's three days in the Bible that are key days. 
three days in the Bible that are absolutely key. And uh, they're absolutely key for Israel, and they're absolutely key for you. The first day in the Bible, we'll just talk about you and me right now. The first day in the Bible that's most important for you and me is the day of Jesus, a day of salvation, the day you got saved. That's the most important day in your life, the day you got saved. The second day in the Bible is the day of Jesus Christ, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes it's called the day of Christ. And then the third day in the Bible, that's the key day, is the day of the Lord. And that's called by a number of different names. But those are your three days in the Bible that the Bible's built around. The Bible's built for you and for me around two concepts, three concepts, really. The first concept is the day you and I got saved. The second concept is the day you stand before Christ. And then the third day is the day we come back with Him. And everything in life and everything in the Bible builds around those three days. And those are the three key days in the Bible. But you know what? You lay the foundation for that on the day of salvation. The day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And uh, Christ is called the chief cornerstone of that foundation in Matthew chapter 21, verse 24. Now, there's a process in building upon this foundation. And this is where if you're a new Christian here or somebody that just wants to get plugged into the Bible and want to make your life count, this is a great practical message for you. I haven't raised my voice one time. Just laying some great practical things out for you. And of course, Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10 is the great process. You see, once you lay the foundation, you're supposed to be a wise master builder. You're supposed to build on it. Because I go back to the original concept that God saved you for a reason. He laid the foundation in your life that you would build being a wise master builder because you're to build your body for God because that's what you're going to use for the ministry. But there's a process. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, he asks the question and he gives us an answer. He says, to whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. You know, those, that, those are two of the greatest verses that show you the process once you get saved and lay that foundation that you begin to build the building. You always see what he said here? He says, uh, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? See, the end result of you getting understanding is getting Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine is the key to everything. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says the Bible's profitable. And the first thing that it's profitable for is doctrine. Doctrine shows you what's right and what's wrong. So it's important. Then he says in verse 9 that it starts with milk drawn from the breast. That's a baby Christian. Bible says over there in 1 Peter 2, 2, babies who desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? That they may grow thereby. You see, it's a process. You get to the place where you get saved, you start out with milk, the sincere milk of the word of God, but through a process of building on this foundation, the end result is you come away with Bible doctrine. You know the Bible. You know how the Bible lays it out. You know how the Bible breaks down. 
You now have the overall concept of the Word of God. You now know each book of the Bible as it relates to the overall Bible. Now you have the ability to break down each chapter within the book. You have the ability to look at the Bible and see it for what it is, not as so many people think that it appears to be. But there's a process. He says, for precept must be upon precept. Now, precepts are principles. And that's what we talk about all the time around here. You see what he's doing here? Precept upon precept. Now, I'm not a bricklayer. I built one wall one time, and it lasted for about a week, and then it fell over. But I learned some things through that, through that screwed-up wall that I built. You see, I thought you just built the bricks on top of each other in straight lines. I learned that you don't do it that way. You lay your first course, and then you lay your second course, but you lay your second course in between the first course. In other words, they call it tying it all in. And when you do that, it strengthens the wall. And then there's another thing that a bricklayer has that I didn't even know about at that particular point, wished I would have had one. And that was a line that he puts on that wall. He'll draw that line in and pull that line tight, and he lines those bricks up to that line. That keeps his wall straight. When he puts the bricks intermittently, that ties the wall in. And when he's done, he has a wall that is tied in to all the other bricks, but it's on the straight line. So he says, precept upon precept, line upon line. You see, the day you get saved, you start laying gospel bricks, I guess the best way to say it, <laughs> on your foundation. Principles about God, principles about the Word of God. But don't build a wall like I built that's going to fall over. You tie it in. You tie it in. Bricklayers call, and when you get saved, you're going to lay one line of bricks. You're going to lay another line of bricks. And the rest of your life, you're going to be putting bricks. And that bricks is representing building your temple. When they do that, they call that every, every row of bricks is called a course. I think that's instructive. I mean, when you go to school someplace and you want to add to your foundation of knowledge, don't you go down and see what courses they offer you? And theoretically, each course you take is supposed to make you smarter than you were before, give you more insight, okay? It's the same with the Bible. Every course of biblical principles, precept upon precept you lay on this foundation makes you more like Christ and makes you more spiritual and makes you smarter when it comes to the Word of God. It's not hard to figure out. He says, for precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, and then here a little, there a little. So here's how it works. You get saved, you lay the foundation in your life. Want to be a wise master builder? You want to, I told you, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 shows you the process. It shows you how to do it. It gives you everything from the day you got saved to the day you meet Jesus Christ and leaves no stones unturned of what, when you leave here today, if you, if you really want to be everything God wants you, wants, you, wants you to be, this is what you need to do. When you got saved, that's your foundation. Then you lay upon that foundation precepts, our bricks. And you lay it one brick at a time. And you put the first course down. But you have a line that you follow. And you keep within that line. And then you tie in the next course of bricks on top of that, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, build that thing up. And then he adds to that, here a little, there a little. What's that all about? 
Well, once you start fundamentally building your bricks on that foundation, you start getting the principles, you start learning the basic fundamentals, you start understanding the Bible and its concept and the books and their concepts and the principles of what happened the day you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God in your life, all of those things. Well, then you add to that here a little, there a little, here a little, there a little. You come to Thursday night, get a little there. You come over to see me one-on-one, you get some more there. You come to your prayer group, somebody gives a principle out, you get some more there. The here little, there little are the things that you do that add to the main course you're building on that foundation. But you have to build it. You have to build it. I hear people all the time, heard it all my life, well, I don't get anything out of coming to church anymore. I had a person years ago uh, came up to me and he said, I said, I haven't seen you at Bible study. Well, you know. Yeah, I, I just haven't come to Bible study for a while. And I said, well, what's going on? He says, oh, well, you know, he says, he said, I don't know. He says, it's just like, you know, we, we always talk about the same things. And I, he says, I, and I, I said, and I said, yeah, a lot of times we do. And you know what? You still haven't learned them. He said, well, I just don't get anything. I said, let me see your Bible. I said, well, there's why you don't get anything out of it. He had a wide margin Bible that was as blank as uh, your face right now. And he says, and I said, there's the reason. You don't get anything out of anything that you don't put something into it. But people don't see that today, you see? I mean, I can give you the materials. I can give you gold-studded two-by-fours. I can give you uh, masonite sheets of plywood. I can give you the greatest uh, stuff that you could ever build a house with. But you know what? All I'm going to do is lay it at your feet. You got to be the wise master builder. And if you don't, it ain't going anywhere. See how simple that is? I mean, this is so simple. All right, now the fifth thing I got in my Bible. Now he's even going to get more tied in. And he's going to talk about these bricks, these precepts upon precepts. Verse 12 and 13 says he's now he's going to deal with the materials of the wise master builder. He says, now, if any man build upon this foundation, all right, we already talked about that. Now, here's what you're going to build. Precept upon precept, line upon line. Here it comes. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, I want to stop here just for a second, and I want to draw your attention to something, and then we're going to come back to it. Look at that thing, verse 13, every man's work. You see that work is singular? Down through the end of the verse, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work. You see it's singular? Now, there's a reason why he didn't say works. And I want you to think about it for the next, oh, 10 or 12 years, but I'll give you a part of the answer here in just a little bit. But there's a reason why the word is not works. And there's a reason why it's the word work. Now, you build on this foundation from the day you got saved the rest of your life. And now we know that you're going to build six things, really two sets of three, three of one or three of the other. The first thing he talks about is gold. Second thing he talks about is silver. And the third thing that he talks about is precious stones. Now, those things are good things. Those things are good things. Those are the things you ought to build. But let's talk about that. You see, the day you got saved, the first thing you build when you start putting precepts down and building those course is gold. You know what gold represents? Gold represents the deity of Christ. 
All through that Bible, everything that represented God was overlaid with gold. When he made the tabernacle, all the furnishings were overlaid with gold. When he made the temple under Solomon, everything was overlaid with gold. Gold is the highest standard that man has, and the highest standard in this world is God. So gold represents that. So gold will always represent the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, the first thing you build on your foundation the day you got saved, you start to learn about him. You start to learn about God. You start to learn about who he is, what he did. You start to learn about who he was and all the things concerning him. And you start to build your relationship about him. And the first thing you base on that relationship, upon that foundation, is about God. And you learn about God and his son. You know the second thing you build? Silver. Now where gold represents the deity of Christ, silver represents the redemption of Christ. So when you got saved and you laid the foundation, the first thing you built upon that, this is so practical, I, 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 I can't understand why you won't get it. When you lay the foundation in your life, if you want to be successful, if you want to be everything that God wants you to be, the first thing you, as a wise master builder, build on that foundation, precept upon precept, line upon line, the first thing you do is put gold. You get to know who he was. The second thing you build is silver. Because after you realize who he was, then you begin to realize what he did. Price of redemption. He sold for 30 pieces of silver, if you didn't know that. Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Leviticus, silver is always the redemption money. So when you build upon that foundation gold, you get to know who he is. When you build upon that foundation silver, you get to know what he did for you. And then the third thing is precious stones. Now, I don't have time to get into all this today, but if you go out of back of Malachi chapter 3 and many other places, you'll find that, uh, uh, that the precious stones represent people. Uh, let me just make it real simple for you. If you want to be everything God wants you to be and you want to be fulfill what God saved you to fulfill, and he saved you for ministry, and the ministry is people. You can diddle around with it all you want, make all the excuses you want, make, uh, make yourself feel good all the way you want to and try to th get out from under it, but at the end of the day, he called you to ministry and the ministry is people. And you want to make that happen? It's so simple, I don't even want to tell you. When you get saved, and some of you are there right now, when you really figure it out, and some of the other ones are there right now, and you see that foundation is the day you got saved, then here's what you build. You build on it gold. You learn about him, and then you build silver. You learn what he did for you. I have never met anybody in my life in all the years I've been in ministry who ever legitimately found out who God was and found out who, what God did for them that didn't want to tell somebody else about it, and there's your precious stones. You see, you can't really know God and really understand what he did for you and not keep your mouth shut about it. You want to tell everybody. And the very fact you're sitting here this morning not telling anybody about it is telling me you're building with substandard material. You may not like that. That's okay. I'll be done here in a minute. You'll go your way, I'll go mine. You say, well, I'm going to restart with you. I'll have to be with you today. I'll just stay away from you. But the rest of your life, you build on that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones. You build the gold of knowing who he is, the silver of knowing what he did for you, and then the people in your life that you invest your life with doing for them simply what he did for you. Or wood, hay, and stubble. Now, wood is dead trees, hay is dead grass, and stubble is dead wheat. 
And I just simply put a note in my Bible along those three that says dead things for dead Christians. And that's what it is. Now, I, I got I, I to gotta gotta ask you this. Now, this is going to be a revelation to some of you. You know, most of God's people live in a dream world that is completely non-existent. They live in a world and a relationship with Christ that they think they have that they don't ever have. Did you notice anything at all about this? Did you notice you build upon that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble? You notice it didn't say you built a little gold and a little hay, a little silver and a little stubble? You see, that's where God's people think they're at. You know what Jesus said one time? He said, he that is not with me is against me. No man can serve two masters. This idea you can have one foot in the world and one foot with God and you and him are all right is a delusion in your mind. At that foundation, you're building three things for him or three things for the world, but you're not mixing and matching when it comes to him. That happens in our mind, you see? That happens in our mind. Today, you can pretty much classify yourself simply by what you're building and the work that is manifest in your life or the material you use. And it's either standard grade material or substandard material. Well, I'm not going to preach to you about that. I'm, this is a practical message. So let's move on to six here. And in my body, no, no, no. You had enough preaching. If I'm done here and somebody wants some preaching, Kevin, you come up and let them have it for a while, okay? <laughs> I'll sit down and listen to you any day. All right, verse 14, the sixth thing. I got this marked in my Bible. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he will receive a reward. Now note, there has to be a matchup to your work abiding with you. Your reward is directly connected to your work. Now the thing I want you to see here, again, it doesn't say works. Even though we got saved... There's always a little bit of Jacob in us. And Jacob means schemer. I don't care how long you've been saved. If you don't keep a handle on your old nature, old Jacob comes out of the bag. And you will always try to outsmart God. That's just human nature. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve didn't believe what he said and they thought they knew more about it than he did, we've all made the same mistakes. And sometimes we make terrible mistakes. Sometimes we just make mistakes, but I don't care. One of the things you're going to have to keep control of all through your life as a saved person is keep that old nature from coming back out because we all have a tendency to want to overthrow God. We do. In our minds, we always think we know more about it than God does. I still struggle with that sometimes. And, I, and it's, just, it's just the old nature that you have to deal with. But I want to tell you something. If I've learned anything in life, I've realized is God, old Mel Sabaki used to say, God's got a monkey wrench that'll fit any nut in this world. And boy, that is so true. I'm going to tell you right now, try as we will. Pretend as we will. Live in a fantasy world with little tattoos saying, the plane, the plane, as we do. You'll never outsmart God and he'll always find a way around you and he will find meet yourself when you try to do it. And that's why he says up there, if any man's work. That's why he said, every man's work shall be made manifest. Shall be tried by fire for every man's work. 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 You see, some of God's people think that if they do good works, plural, they won't have to do a good work. 
You see, good works are things that you do. Oh, I see a need over here, so I'm going to go do it. But a good work is your lifestyle for the rest of your life. A good work is you giving God everything in your life and your life becoming that work. And a lot of God's people won't do that, so they want to do good works. Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, I've seen people give to a needy cause or a needy family, especially, this is really big at Christmas time. At Christmas time, this is why so many people do so many wonderful things, because they want to appease their self that they haven't done anything all the rest of the year. That's why somebody will give a hundred bucks to somebody who's out of food or out of gas or out of this, but they'll never tithe. You know why? Because they're appeasing themselves. They think their good works is going to make them feel better. God doesn't judge your works. He judges your work the life that you're supposed to give to him, sacrifice to him. I don't, I don't mean this in a bad way, but I'm just telling you. There's some people who will, will bring 10 packs of hot dogs and, and, and hamburgers for restart as long as they don't have to go down themselves. You see, that's a good work. That's a good works. But saves me from making my life into a work. I mean, it's, God, God's got us figured, man. God, God's got us down. He knows exactly how we try to shortcut him. I've seen people give the missions and give a lot of money to missions. You know why they give the missions? Because he's a great Christian. No, many times they give the missions to get out from under the feeling of burden that God's called them the missions and they won't go. Oh, I know how it works. You do something for God and give something to God or for God only to appease yourself that you really okay without committing your life and all that you have to him. You give a little bit to God here and a little bit to there, and so you need to feel good, and so you're about keeping everything else for yourself. I mean, I think sometimes I just I say to God, I says, God, you must think I think you're the stupidest person in the world that I can keep trying to get around you. So at the judgment seat of Christ, all these things that we did, all these works, without really committing our life to the work, he doesn't judge those. He judges the work. Singular. And the work has to do with you and your life of giving it to him based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. And anything else, you're just kidding yourself. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, he's talking to, he's talking to uh, the church at Corinth. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10, Now if Timothy, come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord I also do. I got a message out of 2 Kings chapter 4. I never preached it to you guys. I preached it quite often over the years, but I never really preached it to you guys. And uh, I don't know, just never thought about it, got around to it. But I got hundreds of messages that I preached over the years and never preached to you guys. But it, it's back there in 2 Kings chapter 4. And it's built around the nation of Israel. And it simply says this, the more cattle, the less battle. And it's based on the nation of Israel to point in their time and their world and their life and their nation where they had everything that they wanted. And it simply, simply is the more we have for ourselves, the less we want to do for God. And that was Israel. And that's exactly where they were. And uh, I come down through that thing and I, 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 I build the whole thing around the aspect that God's people today will give anything to God. They'll do whatever needs to be done. As long as they don't, they'll give all kinds of money to send somebody to go do something that they don't have to go do themselves. 
and I build it around three great concepts. I build it around the fact that you're giving. There's no substitute for your living. I build it around your, the great concept that you're praying. There's no excuse for your staying. And I build it around the great concept that you're knowing can never replace your going. And when it comes to God's called you to a work, you can do all the works you want. You can do all the nice little things that appease your conscience and make you think you're doing something when you're not and delude yourself into this thing. Well, I help this person, I help that person. And he's not going to judge you for the works. He's going to judge you for the single work and that single work. The day you got saved, he saved you, laid a foundation in your life, and you need to be a wise master builder on it. You can't send somebody else to do, my friend, what God has called you to do. Then the seventh one. Verse 15 and 17, I got it marked in my Bible. It says this, saved yet so as by fire. He says, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are ye? Now, in this passage, uh, our, works is tried by, our work is tried by fire. It's a simple format, really. Your work in that day will survive the fire based on how you survive the trials of fire in this life down here. Because everything comes in this life to stop you from doing the work that God called you to do. So the fire coming over there will never touch your work if you make sure that you build yourself right now as a wise master builder and the fire that comes through the trials of this life doesn't affect your work here. It's real simple. One of the most practical things you'll ever get. You see, when you have built on that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, and the fire comes, that fire put to those things, especially the gold and the silver, they only purify it. They don't hurt it at all. It's just like the trials or the fire that you go through in this life. They make you better. Job was better after he went through what he went through than he was before. You will always be better after you go through something if you learn the principles involved and you see God's hand in it than before you went through it. And that's just the way that it goes. That fire will take everything but your soul. You know, I, I think I've had a lot of people over the years tell me that, well, I'm saved. I, I'm just not going to worry about the judgment seat of Christ. I, I think that is one of the most ridiculous statements that speaks to somebody's absolute total brain loss that I can ever, I can ever think of. It, it certainly comes to the fact that, that they have no understanding of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 3. To make a statement after all that God did for you and for me, that you're going to keep everything that God did for you for yourself, and then you're going to show up to the judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to say, hey, man, everybody's going to be rejoicing, and you're going to be rejoicing because you're saved, and everybody's going to have rewards, and you say, oh, that's okay. I'm just saved. I'm glad I'm here. You think that's how it's going to go? I think fire is probably one of the most tragic things that, that devastates families. And, you know, if you, if you were a husband or a mom here and you were out of town someplace and, and uh, you drove back home and, and uh, you uh, uh, were coming back at night and you come around the corner and all the fire trucks was there and your house was just a burning shambles and, and in that fire was every, everybody in your family lost 
in that fire was every picture you ever had of everybody, anything that ever resembled anything of a relationship with anybody burned up in that fire, and you just saw the smoldering foundation, your pets went up, your canary went up, your fish went up, your wife went up, your kids went up, everything died, everything gone, every picture, everything. You have absolutely nothing except the clothes on your back. Would you actually run around to the firemen and the police officers slapping everyone in the back and say, boy, I lost it all, but I'm glad I'm still alive? Would you really? Well, you just take that and magnify it about a hundred million times when you stand before the one who died for you. You're out of your mind. Then the eighth thing. Verse 16 and 7 ends with a passage and a sobering question. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. You know, now this destruction in verse 17 is the destruction of the flesh. People get confused here and they think that he's talking about somebody dying and being destroyed and going to hell. No, 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 that's not what he's talking. He's talking to saved people here. One of the things you've got to know about the Bible, and this comes as you build some bricks on your foundation, is you're going to find that uh, there's two kinds of condemnation in the Bible. There's a condemnation of your soul, that will be found in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. That's, that's your soul, condemnation of your soul. That's when you die and go to hell. And then there's a condemnation of your flesh. That'll be 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. That's a saved man. That's his body. What he's saying here is if you don't do what's right with God, when he, he saved you and you do your own thing and you don't recognize that your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, you don't realize that you're God's temple, then God's going to destroy that temple. And He will. And it won't be a thing that you die and go to hell. The Bible says you're saved yet so as by the fire, but you lose everything but your soul. You can lose your health. You can lose your eyesight. You can lose your family. You can lose your, everything you got. You can lose your job. You can lose everything. I told you last week, when, as parents, you know exactly what you do when you have a child and you give that child some great, nice present and you give them that and it's a wonderful thing and everybody else would be envious to have that and then that child abuses it. He doesn't do what's right with it. He breaks it. He does damage to it. He, he, he hurts somebody else with it. Are you a parent to teach him a lesson? You know what you're going to do. You take it away from him. Well, God gives you everything you've got. You abuse it, God takes it away from you. He'll take it away from you. And if not in this life, certainly in the next one. Now the question here, and we're going to end with this, and we'll be done. This has been a good, solid, practical message. If you're someone here today that you just got saved in the last couple of months or six months, this has really been good for you to hear this today. Because now you know the practical side, the operational side. You know now what you need to do. And I have all the materials you need. All you got to do is come and see me and I'll sit down with you and I'll give you everything you need. I'll put every person in, this, in your world that you need to have to make sure you get what you need to get. That's my job. If you're somebody who's been looking through a church and you can't find what you need to help your growth, your marriage, your family, or whatever it may be, and today God tapped you on the shoulder and said, you need to tap into that building supply material and get what you need. Hey, this has been a good day, a good, solid, practical message to tell you what you need to do. And I stand at the judgment seat of Christ now, and you'll never be able to point your finger at me and say, I didn't tell you. Brother, I told you. But the last thing you want to remember today, and this is what I leave you with, 
He says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, comma. Which temple are ye? And that's the question you got to ask. Whose temple are you this morning? What know ye not your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Which temple are ye? Well, let's have a word of prayer here and we'll be dismissed. And uh, if you have any questions that I can help you with, come and see me. I'm going to give you guys about five minutes and then I'll call to restart people down. And uh, we'll need everybody we can get.